Anyway, without further ado, let's welcome Greg. Great, thank you um, very much indeed, Mark. And uh, as you can see, what we're doing at the moment is working through um, a series. And the series, those of you who are guests, is called The Name. Um, It's looking at different names of God. So when Mark asked me to preach, I did say to him, look, is there any chance I could uh, use something I've done already? Now, I never never preach a sermon twice exactly the same. I never do that. But I do reshape material, obviously, because it's easier. But he said, no, no, we're doing this series... Uh, so he said, well, we'd like to do the name. So actually, no secondhand, you didn't want any secondhand sermon, did Pastor Mark. And so this is uh, written especially for Apex, brand new, a brand new sermon. Well, very good. So we'll tr- try and run it here, so it goes. And then reshape it for somebody else, maybe. But um, so you're, you're going through this series, obviously, on uh, the name, uh, looking at names of God in the Bible. And we're looking, it's a bit of Hebrew transliterated into English there, Adonai Jehovah. So that's the name that we're going to be thinking about um, today. Anyway, just by way of introduction, if you, you don't know who I am, or uh, maybe you're a visitor, uh, so um, I'm uh, Greg, my name's Greg Downs, and I'm a, I, we live in Oxford, live, live with my family in Oxford. Um, I'm a lecturer at a place called Wycliffe Hall, it's one of the 44 colleges of Oxford University, and half our students are trainee vicars, and uh, so I work as a college lecturer. Um, our home church in Oxford is St. Aldate's, a, a big Anglican charismatic church there in the centre of Oxford, um, but we've got a flat on the island here in Cowes, uh, we've had that for 18 months, and so Apex is our home away from home church, that's what we consider, our, I just what I said to Pastor Mark this morning, our home away from home church, so it's great to be here, so much so um, I actually uh, thought I'd keep it in the family, and I, I, when I needed a haircut I thought I'd save it up, and uh, went for a ha- haircut <clears throat> with Kosh, uh, look, at, look at that for a bit of free advertising, cracking haircut, <laughs> By my friend, uh, Kush on the Island of Wight. Better than the one previous in Valencia and the one before that in Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> highly recommended. The best hairstylist on the island, in brackets, and quite possibly on North Island too. Uh, getting into the lingo, getting into the lingo. Anyway, so uh, we're saving that uh, for... Um, saved up my haircut for that. Anyway, I got into a little bit of trouble yesterday. We've got some friends staying at the moment, Robinsons, and a good friend of mine, Paul. We were playing family games last night after dinner, and he sent me uh, one of these kind of Facebook memes... Um, uh, that he, he found from somewhere. And uh, I got distracted at that point, didn't I, Paul? Uh, I actually left the room slightly. I didn't I physically left, leave the room. Did you ever do that? Did your wife tell you off? My wife tells me. I sort of left the room because I was basically sending this, this Facebook thing to all my friends. But it caused a certain amount of confusion. So this is what I sent to loads of my friends on Facebook um, last night. So, uh... <laughs> is anyone from New Zealand here? This one. Anyone from New Zealand? No, no. Oh, I didn't yeah. Anyway, lots of people... Didn't understand it. <clears throat> a friend of mine, uh, the evangelist, I sent it to the evangelist, Jay John, some of you might know him, and he, and he said to me, has this got spiritual significance? <laughs> and so I basically sent him this. I said, translation, uh, against all the odds, the English rugby football team won against New Zealand in the semi-final of the Rugby World Cup. New Zealanders are co- colloquially known as Kiwis. Popular consensus saw it as a crushing defeat. Uh, so basically that's what... That's why I said to J. John and various other people. But actually, one or two of my friends were worried, and they, they didn't understand, and they came back and said, is this prophetic? And, uh, and including a vicar who thought maybe it was a word of judgment, a judgment against him, you know, that uh, basically God was going to come and crush him in some particular way. Anyway, so I, I managed to clear it up. Do you know, sometimes we do need a translation, don't we? And if we're citing Hebrew, you know, the title, might have, you may be thinking, what on earth is that about? Adonai, Adonai Jehovah, it's in Hebrew, 
So the translation, we need translation sometimes, notably with, with this. Um, and so Adonai Jehovah, as this church banner um, illustrates, literally means the Lord our sovereign. So it's, it's uh, Hebrew. There are lots of different Hebrew names well, uh, for God uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, obviously different ones in the New Testament as well. And it literally means the Lord our sovereign or the Lord our king. So to say that God is our sovereign, what we're saying is that he's our king. Maybe in colloquial language, uh, he's our boss. Um, we're, we're those who choose to submit to his ways as, as, as Christian people, as people of faith. Now, we might be thinking, what's in a name? You know, all these different names. There's loads of different um, names uh, for God in the Bible. It's littered with them through the Old Testament and the New Testament. So actually, what's in a name? How is that significant in any way? Well, names are significant, aren't they? So my name, um, I don't know whether you, when you found out what the meaning of your name was, whether you liked it or you loathed it, or maybe you were just indifferent to it. You know, obviously, sometimes Christians, uh, they call their children uh, names because it has a significance. So when our first daughter was born um, at Easter, so we called it Anastasia. And uh, the, the Greek word Anastasia literally means resurrection. So that's why we called her um, Anastasia. But obviously some Christians don't bother do, with doing that and sometimes names are purely accidental. So my, my, my parents weren't Christians when I was born. So uh, my name's Greg, short for Gregory. And actually my mum named me that. Some of the old ones might get this because she, she fancied somebody called Gregory Peck. <laughs> and uh, who... Uh, so when I was at school, no one knows who this guy is now, but one of my nicknames at school was Peckhead. People go, all right, Peckhead, hey, Peckhead, Peckhead. Pe- but nobody knows who Gregory Peck is now, and I don't even know who he is anyway. But, uh, but when I found out the real meaning of the word, Gregory literally means watchful one, and it's actually a, an early Christian name. Its origin was 2,000 years ago. And what it means, one, it means one who watches for the return of Christ. So my name is, has got, to use a theological word, eschatological significance. Yes. If you don't know what the word eschatology means, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. It means eschaton is the end times. Anyway, boom, boom. Right, so uh, my, it, basically my name means one who watches for the return of Christ. So I love my name. I remember there was one episode when I was, on, I was an ordinan trained to be a vicar, and I went to a conference run by HGB, Holy Trinity Brompton. And basically this was a time in the 90s when there was an outpouring of the Spirit. Some of you were around then who were Christians. The Toronto outpouring was happening then, and there was, there was lots of Holy Spirit um, phenomena that was happening. And I basically, we all had name badges, you know, so at the conference we all knew who each other was. And one of my friends um, came up to my name badge, and what he did is he got one of those circular stickers. You know, it was, um, you, know you can get a circular office sticker, and he put it over the G. I didn't think anything of it, but he put it over the G, and I just didn't think anything of it. Anyway, so I went up, I went up for prayer ministry at this, at this conference for HTB, and this man who I didn't know prayed for me, and he, and he said, he was a West Country accent, he said, Lord, we pray for your servant, Reg. He said, <laughs> anyway, at that point, I started to, I started to shake, like, like, laugh like this. And, of course, he thought it was the Holy Spirit. He said, more power, Lord, than power. And I was sort of laughing away. But I can assure you, it was purely carnal. Um, the laughter, Lord, we pray for you, so Reg. And that became one of my nicknames. When I was a curate, I was called Reg the Verger. Verger's like a church caretaker. So I shouldn't be telling you all these nicknames, Peckhead, Reg the Verger, because, you know, you'd be calling me these names, which I've hopefully are in the dim and distant past. So names are significant, aren't they? What is in a name? So, Mark, what does your name mean? It means warrior. Literally, literally, the etymology of it is Mart Kos. Uh, it literally means consecrated to the god Mars. So it's a, it's a pagan name, or warrior. It's a, it's, a pagan, it's a pagan name. But obviously, it became Christian, even though the meaning didn't change. It became Christian, of course, because it was one of the, one of the early Christians, Saint Mark or Saint Mark, we sometimes call him. So it became a Christian name. Paul, over, over there. Paul, what's your name mean? 
Little, it means, it means literally, paulos literally means little. Um, and again, it, it doesn't, no, no great spiritual significance as, as such. But the Apostle Paul, some people think that Paul may have been a little, a little man, a man of, you know, a diminutive man who obviously packed a punch as an incredible um, apostle. Ashley's not here this morning, but his name literally means Ash Tree Meadow. So, uh, not, I'm glad I'm not called that. But um, <laughs> have, we, have, we got, have we got any Phillips here this morning? Phillips, put your hand up. Phillips, no, that's a lover of horses. That's a good one. Um, Gilbert, no Gilberts. No, good, that literally means spit. Um, <laughs> Belinda, any Belinda? No, no, I can see why. That means beautiful serpent. Um, Olivia, no, Olivia's here this morning. That means gang of elves. Uh, interesting. And Cassandra, we don't hear many Cassandras these days. Do we know Cassandras, I presume? No, not surprisingly, we don't hear many Cassandras. That literally means she who ensnares men. Um, so, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. So, Cassandra. So, but, but the point is, names have meanings. And when it comes to um, biblical names, there are lots of biblical names in the, in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament too, uh, as you can see, El Shaddai, our sufficiency, Genesis, mentioned in Genesis 22, uh, verse uh, 17. Have we had that one in the series? What are some of the ones that we've had, Paul? Shalom. Shalom, our peace, obviously, numerous mentions, but Judges 6, 24, but other... Uh, we started on Rovi, but we haven't got very far. Yeah, okay, Rohi, which is my shepherd, obviously the Lord my shepherd. We talked about Elohim. Uh, Elohim, yeah, which is our eternal creator, Genesis 2, verse 4, and following. The Lord of hosts is going to be... Sabaoth, Sabbath, Lord of, Lord of hosts, 1 Samuel 1, verse 3. So basically there's all these different names, obviously New Testament ones as well, like the Alpha and the Omega, that's Greek words, obviously. But in the Old Testament, it's littered with, with names of God, and here's a, a few of them. A few of them here. Now, actually, where, it, where, it, where our names may not mean anything, if we're called Gilbert, obviously, presumably the parents of Gilbert didn't want to call him Spit. You know, so names don't necessarily mean anything for, for us in our modern uh, day language. But in Bible times, names did mean things. People were given names often prophetically. And actually, we tried to do that with our children. We prayed about our names. So uh, whereas Mark is dedicated um, to uh, the god Mars, uh, one of our daughters is... Uh, um, uh, um, um, Trinity, sorry, Trinity, I forgot, Trinity Gabriella, Trinity Trinity Gabriella, which means dedicated to the God who is Trinity, so actually not a pagan one like yours, Mark, it's actually more of a Christian one, anyway, so we we tried to do that ourselves, but biblically that's what they did, They, they gave names prophetically, and the names of God are significant, because actually the names of God are his job description, so actually the names of God aren't just, you know, nice thoughts or, or, or pious, pious thinking. The names of God are his job description. So the slide behind me, when it says, you know, basically God is um, our maker, um, it's because he's our creator, it's our shepherd, because he, he looks after us, he, he pastors us. Um, um, whether it's uh, shalom, it is, is he, he gives us peace, even in the midst of the storm. Um, Jehovah Rapha, I don't think that one is up there, is it? Jehovah Rapha, but that means God our healer, the God who heals. He's the God who heals. So the one I picked today is Adonai, which means um, sovereign or king. And so it's his, job, it's his job description. It's not just a nice thing. It's actually what he does. So what the first time, let's look at it then. The first time that uh, this Adonai, Adonai Jehovah is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. And this is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, obviously the father of monotheism, believing in one God, the father of the Judeo-Christian tradition as it now is. So God Yahweh, or Jehovah, reveals himself, makes himself known to this man, uh, Abraham, before his name was changed to Abraham, who worshipped the moon god. Um, he, was a, uh, he, he was a polytheist. He believed in many gods. He worshipped the moon god, amongst others. And it says this, After this, the word of the Lord, that is Jehovah, um, came to Abraham, 
before the name change, in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. This is God speaking to him. I am your shield, obviously speaks of God's protection, your very great reward, which is that God wants to prosper him. And Abraham said, sovereign Lord, dot, dot, dot. So God reveals himself to this nomadic tribesman, Abraham, and, uh, and Abraham's response uh, is sovereign Lord. In other words, Adonai Jehovah, that's what it is in Hebrew, Adonai Jehovah. And here it is in... Um, you, you can see it there in the... This is a kind of a, uh, interlinear uh, transliteration of the, the Hebrew. Um, um, give me what the, uh, the Lord Abraham but said. Um, um, uh, there, there it is. Adonai Jehovah. There it, there it is in the Hebrew language. Uh, so we, we, can see, we can see it there in, in the Hebrew. Adonai Jehovah. God who is, is sovereign, essentially. That's the first time it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It makes numerous appearances, or a few, one or two appearances, in the, in the New Testament. One of my favorites is in Acts chapter 4, where um, some of the apostles have just got out of prison. They got in prison for preaching the gospel. And there's a, an, a, there's a prayer meeting that happens uh, in the face of persecution, when the onset of persecution happens. And basically what we're told is all the believers, um, they were gathered together um, in one place, and we're told, this is in Acts 4, verse 24, they lifted up their voice to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, uh, you made the heaven and the earth and all the, the sea and all that is in it. So Sovereign Lord, despota it is in, in Greek there, but it's, that's the Greek equivalent of Adonai Jehovah. It's, it's the Greek equivalent, Sovereign Lord. God, God, you are, God, you are sovereign. These early Jewish Christians, as they were followers of Jesus, they addressed God as sovereign. Now what we're going to do today is a bit of a, a, a thematic Look, I pick three things throughout the scriptures which speak of God as sovereign, Adonai Jehovah, God who is sovereign, God who is king. Now, when you do this, it's good to preach in an expository way. It's, it's perfectly acceptable to preach thematically. But if you do that, if we look at three different verses, it's important that we don't take the verses out of context. Because if we're preaching on one verse, it's totally okay to preach on one verse or three verses like this. But sometimes Christians who do this, they rip it out of context. It's important not to do that. So we're going to look at the context. Context is all important. As this um, church calendar, this, you know, you can get those nice devotional calendars with little verses on to bring comfort to, to you at different times. And this devotional calendar, calendar illustrates the point for July the 3rd. Um, if thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Luke verse 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, which of course is, um, that's the devil speaking to Jesus. If thou wilt worship me, all shall be thine. So actually, you know, that's a verse, you know, not help, helpfully not, not taken out of context. So three verses then. Um, three different things about the sovereignty of God, and we're going to look at the context in each. Okay, the first one, this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. And the title, as you can see, is God is in control. God is in charge. God is sovereign. He's, he's king of the whole world. Um, and this is Paul writing to his spiritual charge. Timothy, these words were penned not long before Paul himself was martyred for the faith. Paul himself uh, uh, gave up his life um, as a martyr. He was, uh, uh, by tradition, uh, killed, de- decapitated in, in Rome. And this was perhaps a few weeks before he faced his own martyrdom. So this is Paul to Timothy. And he says, In the sight of God, he says, Who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good conf- confession, I charge you. So this is Paul charging Timothy again. A kind of legal, almost like with a kind of legal implications here. I charge, charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which God will bring about in his own time. So basically, what's the command that Paul is charging Timothy to keep? It's to be holy. Let's put it in context. If you were to read a few verses before this, he's charging uh, Timothy to live a holy life, to live a righteous life. That's the command, to be holy. And then he says, uh, keep this, um, he, he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he referring to there? He's referring to the second coming of Jesus. Christians have believed, and I preached actually in Advent about this time last year, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, the second coming of Jesus. So here's a reference to the parousia. Uh, the parousia is the reference to the, uh, the theological word for the second coming. Greek word parousia literally means appearing. In fact, we see it in this passage here. So in other words, keep this command to be holy until the parousia, that is when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, which God will do in his own time. Uh, so actually, God, God himself is in charge of the end of human history when Jesus will return to, um, to judge the world and usher in his kingdom of righteousness. And then he says this, God the blessed and only ruler. He gets into kind of doxological mode. In fact, early Christians see this as a piece of doxology, something which is the stuff of worship and may even have been part of a hymn in the early church. So he says this, God the blessed and only ruler the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. A few amens already happening there. Isn't it wonderful, this this prosaic doxology from Paul about the sovereignty of God? What, What Paul is saying to Timothy is God is in control even if it doesn't seem like it. Why might it not seem that God is in control? Because Paul is in prison. Paul is about to, and he's got, he's got a prophetic intuition about this, he's going he's to die. A lot of us would think, oh, well, where's God? You know, if we were in prison and we were about to die, we'd think, well, where's God? Why is he not answering my prayers? Is God not it? Have I got it wrong? Is God not in control? No, Paul, even though he's facing martyrdom, is absolutely convinced God is in control. God is on the throne. Nothing can change that. So what's the pastoral significance for us? Because I, be, I believe you know, God's word is there to shepherd us, and that might bring us a word of comfort, but it might be to give us a word of rebuke. In this case, perhaps it's a word of gentle rebuke. God is in control, so we don't have to be. God is in control, so we don't have to be. We're quite um, au fait these days with the term control freak, aren't we? As in, we all, we all know about control freaks, uh, people who actually seem to like not just controlling themselves, but controlling other people, people who are massive micromanagers. Maybe you've worked for one. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> Um, but if you work for a control freak, it's not nice, is it? If, uh, and you think, fine, control your own life. Don't control me, not in this kind of micromanaging way. Well, psychologists tell us that actually control, this is, and by the way, control, I'm not just talking about wanting things done decently and in order, that kind of thing. But excessive control is based in fear. That's what psychologists say. The root cause of control is fear. At uh, 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 bottom, all of us as human beings, part of the human condition is, is anxiety and fearfulness. It is. That's part of the human sinful lot, certainly without Christ. And the um, and, and manifestation of um, that, that fear sometimes is to control. We actually feel out of control, so we want to control things in our life, and we want to control other people. Um, James Frey says this. He says, And loss of control is always the source of fear. It is also, however, the source of change. So it's when we fear that we're losing control, you know, I'm I'm actually out of control, that's the cause of fear, when we actually can get controlling with people. However, it's also the source of change. So this is a a pastoral word for us, and maybe it's a word of rebuke for some of us. If If we are control freaks, stop it. 
Let's stop being control freaks. It's making a, perhaps a nightmare for the people who work for us, if anyone works for us. Maybe a nightmare for our spouses, a nightmare for our children, if we, if, we, if we want to excessively control. It's based upon fear. And actually, what do we do? We need to repent. That is to say, change our mind and, and not just see, oh, this is me, I'm just control. No, no, absolutely. We need to repent if we're excessively controlling. It's actually an expression of brokenness. It's an expression of sinfulness as well. Loss of control is always the source of fear. It's also the, the source of change. Because when we step out of denial and recognize that if we're excessively controlling, it's not just me, but it's a problem, then actually there's hope that we can actually bring about change. And for the disciple of Jesus Christ, this should be um, a, a thing that is certainly within the bounds of possibility because we believe God changes us, can change us, by his indwelling spirit. So fear, then, is forgetting that God is in control. Fear, and the manifestation of that might be you being excessively controlling, fear is forgetting that God is in control. So drink deep, brothers and sisters, of this glorious and liberating truth that God is in control, that God is sovereign. Read those wonderful doxological words of Paul to Timothy that that wax lyrical about the sovereignty of God. Drink deep of that truth. Recognize if you've got a problem with control. Repent of it and ask God by his Holy Spirit to change you. Get prayer ministry. Speak to one of the pastoral team here. Get prayer ministry at the end and ask God that you're able to let go of excessive control and actually uh, uh, get, get, deal with the root cause, which is so often fear, that actually you might live a life that actually liberates people and gives permission to people and blesses people rather than seeks to es- excessively control. So I said, didn't I, already that God's word is pastoral. We think, well, that's nice and shepherding. But actually, sometimes God's pastoral word is a word of rebuke. Okay, so if we're feeling a bit, well, there's a little bit of a word of a rebuke. Let's go for a past, more of a pastoral word that's in terms of, in kind of shepherding, in terms of bringing us comfort. And the second word is this. God can bring good out of evil. And I've picked another verse, which is one, again, this is another one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 20. Now, I said the context is everything, didn't I? So the context here is towards the end of the Joseph saga. We're all familiar, of course, with uh, Joseph, the, the, the patriarch, uh, Joseph in his coat of many, many colors, fame in terms of the Lloyd Webber uh, musical. I saw that fairly re- recently again for about the 13th time. But we're all familiar with the, with the story and this is basically at the end of Joseph's life when his brothers, who had sold him into slavery, um, and, uh, and he, got, he ended up in, in Egypt in slavery, the, there was a famine, obviously, in the land of Canaan. The brothers come to ask for food, and eventually Joseph unveils himself to his brothers, to his siblings, that he is, in fact, the brother that they tried to do away with. That's the context. The context of this verse is that what Joseph is saying is that bad stuff happened, but God is capable of bringing good even out of bad. So here's the verse. Joseph said to them, these are his brothers who tried to kill him or at least do away with him. Do not be afraid, he says. Am I in the place of God? That's because his brothers thought that he would kill them. His brothers thought he'd get vengeance and kill uh, kill, kill them. Do not be afraid, he says. Am I in the place of God? In other words, I am not sovereign. That's That's a lesson for all of us as Christians. I'm not God. You know, let's all repeat that after me. One, two, three. I'm not God. It's fantastic. I'm not God. He is, he is God. I am not. Joseph recognized that truth. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I, I just love that. It sometimes brings tears to my eyes to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, the famine relief that was happening as God used Egypt under Joseph as prime minister, as his person, as his anointed man of God, to actually bring famine relief, not just to Egypt, but actually to the, to the region, including Canaan. But the key verse here is, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Sometimes the translation of this is, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. What human beings mean for evil, God can simultaneously bring good 
out of. And, and Joseph knew this full in his own experience. Remember, he basically ended up in the pit. His, bro- his brothers put him in a pit and left him to die. Then, then he eventually was the, the servant, wasn't he, of, 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 of basically Potiphar. Potiphar's wife made a pass at him. Obviously, she then accused him falsely of rape. And he ends up in, in, in the prison. So do you not think Joseph's thinking when he's in the pit or he's in the prison, where is God? Is God really in control? Is God really sovereign? But we know that's not the end of the story. He went from the pit to the prison to the palace as prime minister. And Joseph believed in God. He believed in God's uh, sovereignty, trusted God, even when things um, didn't seem good for him. The outlook didn't seem good. Now, in theology, I'm sure you know, there's a whole theology to do with the sovereignty of God and how sovereign God is. And some the people who, who emphasize often that God is sovereign in a very strong way are sometimes called Calvinists. Um, people who uh, emphasize the free will of humanity um, are called Arminians. They're named after two theologians, Jean Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. So uh, the Calvinists, uh, Calvinists emphasize one, um, Arminians emphasize the other. Now, actually, I think the truth actually is both, because b- both are true biblically. So when asked what I am, sometimes I'll say I'm a Calvinian. I'll occasionally say I'm a Calvinian, because both are true, divine sovereignty and, and, and human um, free, free will. Um, but actually, the, you know, the, the truth is, even if we take a more reformed view, and I lean on the reformed view, the, more, the Calvinist view, that doesn't mean that God is a determinist. That doesn't mean that everything that happens, God is responsible for that actually is wrong. That's not, Calvin wouldn't have believed that himself. Let me use an example of this. When I was at theological college, there was a guy there who was so Calvinist, he believed God was responsible for everything that happened. And I said, surely not everything. And, and he said, yes, there's everything. And I said, well, what about the Holocaust? And he said, no, God is so in control, he said that I believed it was God's hand that was closing the gas chamber door. That's what I think, oh, oh, you're right, horrific, horrific. You know, do not place at the, 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 the feet of God things which is, which is born of sinful human endeavor, inspired, in fact, by the evil one. So actually, let's, we need to have a balanced view of this. Yes, God is, is, is sovereign, absolutely. This is what the sermon is all about. We also have free will as well. Um, this popped up, popped up on, on my news feed recently. Um, you, this is uh, John Calvin Satnav. You have reached your predestination. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was, that was funny. But, you know, your, God is sovereign, but things happen in this world which are to do uh, with our sinful human nature. God giving us free will, us using our sinful human nature against him, actually inspired by the enemy. So God isn't responsible for the Holocaust. It's, it's the devil, ultimately. I mean, obviously, the, the Nazi regime and, and Hitler were, were culpable and are responsible to, to God for their actions, but, but the, the, the enemy was inspiring that. But this glorious truth is that what man intended for evil, God meant for good, that God can bring good even out of adversity. Here's an example uh, from my own ministry that I remember that brought this home. This uh, lovely lady that you see is called Connie. And I was, um, a few years ago, I was the theologian and missioner of this church called St. Michael Le Belfry. And as part of my job there, I ran an intern program called Forge. And I used to interview potential Gapia students who generally were 18, 18 19 before they went to university. And I interviewed this uh, lovely young lady called Connie who, for the course. And she told me then, and I, I knew that she had cancer. She was actually getting treatment for cancer at the time. And Connie had become a Christian um, uh, through, through St. Michael the Belfry. Her, she wasn't from a Christian family. Her mum and her dad and her, her brother were not believers. And, but a bit like my, my own experience, she had become a Christian even though she wasn't from a Christian family. Anyway, sadly, when the course began uh, six months, nine months later, Connie was too ill uh, to, to start the course. And actually, it was during that year, during that academic year that she died. She lost her battle to cancer and she sadly died. It was a real uh, tragedy through that, uh, we got to know her beautiful family. This is her mum, Judith. This is her dad, 
Tony, and a brother, Harvey. And a mum and dad did a, an alpha course that me and my wife were, were running at St. Michael of Belfry. And through that, they came to faith in Christ. And Harvey came to faith in Christ. And now that, um, they're, they're passionate Christians. They're part of the church in St. Michael of Belfry. Now, I don't believe for a minute God caused, Canny, caused Connie to get cancer. I don't believe that for a, a minute. But he did bring good um, out of something which was dark, which was namely the salvation of her, of her whole family. Okay, third point and final point is this. God has a plan for you. Now, of all, of verses that are ripped out of context, this is one of the chief verses that Christians love to rip out of context. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. So let's put this in context. This is what the, the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Uh, for I know the plans I have to you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So the context of this is God's people, Israel, are in exile in Babylon. They're in exile in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah, the prophet, um, says that the, the, the exile is, in fact, a punishment from God, from Jehovah, for their disobedience to him. But even in the midst of their disobedience, when they're in exile, God is p- promising to prosper them, even in captivity. And what's more, he promises to restore them to the land. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. That is the land of Israel. So uh, e- even though they're being punished, God is prospering them in their captivity, and he's actually saying he's going to fulfill his promise to bring them back to the land of promise, which is the land of Israel. So what's the principle? God wants to bless, not bash. He wants to prosper, not petrify He wants to help, not harm. That is the nature of our God. This is our God. He knows the beginning from the end. And not only is he sovereign over creation, if you submit your life to him, he is sovereign over you. If you allow him to be, he longs to be sovereign. He longs to be king over you. Perhaps the best example that I can think of that illustrates this is an episode that happened um, about, about five years ago now. When me and my wife were in the, in the States, Tammy and I actually, um, uh, Tammy, as you know, uh, she's a, a doctor, and uh, you may know that, and so she took, she took some leave of absence, and I took a sabbatical before I began the job at York, and we went over for four months to the United States, and uh, Anastasia was young, Trinity was just born, so Trinity was like a babe, a babe in arms, so she's six now, so yeah, this is five, five, about five years ago, something like that. Anyway, there was one particular day, we were, we were heading into Los Angeles, and we were, going to get a, we were going to get a boat out of Los Angeles the next morning for a cruise, and we had this um, kind of like van car thing that I'd hired, and without asking her, I changed the sat-nav gradients from the hotel, and, so Tammy, and this, it, was, it, was, it was kind of getting dark, and Tammy said, what, what are you doing? And I said, oh, do you mind, I, would you, would you, I'm just going to pop in on Azusa Street, because so I, I, put, I put in Azusa Street into the sat-nav. Now, those of you who might know, Azusa Street, I'd never been before, but Azusa Street is a famous address within church history because there was a thing called the Azusa Street Revival which uh, happened um, about 100 years ago and um, uh, the, God used a guy called the Reverend William J. Seymour who is an African-American uh, pastor and there was a revival that happened uh, from April the 9th 1906 right through to 1915 in 812 Azusa Street and, and out of that came the modern-day Pentecostal movement. We talked about the gifts of the Spirit earlier. Not that they were completely absent from the church, but they were restored to the church in a very emphatic way. And actually, the, the, the worldwide assemblies of God sees its origins in this Azusa Street revival. So anyway, I, t- I, put, I put in the sat-nav, let's go to Azusa Street. And of course, Tammy's thinking, what are, you, what are you doing? We need to get to the hotel. We've got this young baby. Anyway, so I, we got to Azusa Street. I parked at the top of Azusa Street. It was dark by now. And Azusa Street, it turns out, is a cul-de-sac 
And to the right of the cul-de-sac, there was this, like, this car park with a kind of flower bed there. And I parked the car at the very top of the street. And I said to Tammy, I'm just getting out. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just going for a little prayer walk. I won't be long. I won't be long. Because obviously she's, ner- she's a bit nervous. She was in the passenger seat. And so, of course, when I got out, she put, put the locks on, of course, you know, in downtown L.A., and it's dark. So I do a little quick walk down Azusa Street, and I thank the Lord for William J. Seymour. And this is my prayer. I said, Lord, do it again. That's, that was my prayer. Do it again, Lord. And I said, we need another Pentecost, which is a famous prayer by William Booth. We need another Pentecost. Send the fire. That was my prayer. It was only a few minutes. Got to the front of Azusa's top of Azusa Street, having walked back. And now I'm standing at the top of Azusa Street, and Tammy, the car there, Tammy's in the car. And this young man called Mike, there he is, he appears seemingly out of nowhere, this guy. And Mike basically says, can I have some money? So I do a little arrow prayer and think, oh, gosh, you know, is, you know, is it safe to get my wallet out? You know, just... So I do a little arrow prayer, and I think, well, it seems okay. So anyway, I give him, give him a few dollars, and I get talking to this guy, Mike, and I say to him, um, are you a person of faith? Now, it turns out Mike says he believes in God, but he's never given his life to Jesus. He's never experienced the Holy Spirit, but he does believe in God. He's theistic. He believes in God. So I say to him, um, you know, would you like to know a bit more about God? So he says, yes. So I, I, share to him, I share the gospel with him as simply as I can, just in a few minutes. And um, meanwhile, Tommy's watching all this from the, from the car uh, windscreen. And, uh, and I say to him, would you like to receive Jesus? And he says, yes, I would. So basically, I lead, I lead this guy, Mike, to Christ. And he says a prayer inviting Jesus into his life. And then I simply put a, an arm on his, on his, on his shoulder and I pray for him to be filled with the Spirit, which I, I do, you know, anyone, at any time I lead someone to Christ, I usually do that. At this point, Mike's eyes begin, begin to flicker like this, and he begins to shake, and he falls, he falls over. This is on the, on the road. So I catch him. I actually let him, let him down. I managed to let him down. And he's there in the middle of the road at the top of Azusa Street. And so I'm uh, not praying more, Lord, at this point. I'm just sort of you know, praying for... Praying for Mike. And anyway, at this point, a car tries to drive into Azusa Street. And it basically, I'm, I'm, I stand in front of Mike, because obviously he's laying supine on the road. And I said, no, no, you can't come. The car does a U-turn and it pulls out. Then I carry on praying for Mike. It goes on for a few more minutes. Then a uniformed police officer comes. A police officer comes up. And, uh, and he basically says, you know, what's going on here? And I said, well, officer, I said, I'm a pastor from England. I said, I've just, played, I've just prayed for this man and he's just been touched by the Holy Spirit. And the, the officer says, well, okay, pastor, just carry on. Absolutely fine. He walks off. He walks off. And I thought, only in America, only in America. If that was in London, I'd be in Brixton, Nick. Uh, but anyway, so basically, anyway, Mike, after a few minutes, Mike gets up. And he basically said, oh, I don't know what happened there. He said, I, I, he said, I, I felt like a weight lifted off me, he said. And he said, I saw hundreds of little hands being laid on me. I don't know what that was, whether it was angels or not. He said, I saw hundreds of little hands being laid on me. It was like a weight lifted off me. So I basically added him on Facebook, said, we'll keep in contact. Um, obviously, by now, Tammy is literally looking out the window, of the, like the windscreen of the car, and just thinking, what is, what, is, what is going on? But we drive off to the hotel, and she doesn't tell me off too badly. And as we're driving to the hotel, I have one of those moments. I think, I've dreamt that. I, rem- I remember dreaming that 20 years before when I was at theological college. And I said, I remember diarying it. And I don't think I'd seen the diary since or read the diary entry since, but I'm sure I, not only I dreamt it, I actually diaried about it. So anyway, when I got back to England... I thought, I've got to find that diary. So I ripped the house apart to find the diary. Where did I find the diary? In a box in the garage, of course, where you find all these things. I managed to find the place uh, where the ent- entry happened. And as I read the diary entry, my eyes filled with tears. And this is the diary entry. Had a dream last night about leading a man to Christ in a car park. As we prayed, he was slain in the spirit. And my wife, question mark, watched on anxiously. I think she was a doctor. And this was, um, I was, I was 26 years of age, I was single, I'd not even met Tammy at this stage. It was 19 years before, this was 19 years before. I actually praise the Lord, who is sovereign, not just of, over creation, but sovereign over my life. 
you're guiding me, leading my footsteps. As the Bible says, the steps of a righteous person are ordered by the Lord. We're righteous because we're in Christ. I thank the Lord because of his sovereignty. God has a good plan for you. Will you submit to him as your king? So God has a good plan for you, brothers and sisters. But if you're not a Christian, or maybe you've fallen away from God, or you're not as close to God as you were, one of the keys to, to God leading you and guiding you, being your sovereign, is you being his subject. He can't be your sovereign unless you choose to be his subject. So notice, after this amazing promise of, uh, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future, amazing promise, then uh, Jeremiah the prophet says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me and when you seek me, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. What an amazing promise. You will seek me, says God, and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. So actually, the final thing this morning is to say, have you done that? Have you submitted your life to this king? Have you, have you submitted your life to this good sovereign who is perfect in every way, who lives in unapproachable light, who can do no wrong? This king who only has good plans for you to prosper you and to bring to fruition his plan for the whole of humanity, which is to bring as many people as possible into the conformity of the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, and establish his kingdom uh, on this earth and in the heaven, in their heavens, not just now, but for eternity. Have you submitted yourself to this good king? We're going to finish now. We're running out of time by communion. We often finish with communion. And in a moment, I'm going to finish with, um, with the blessing. I'm going to finish with the, with the blessing. And um, we're gonna, at the end of the service, like we sometimes do here, there's an opportunity to receive communion. There's going to be a station here at the front. There's a station halfway down at the back. But what I'd like to do first as we go into communion is this. Give an opportunity for anyone here to either commit their lives to Jesus Christ, that is to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or recommit your life to Jesus Christ. And I've written a prayer for the occasion. Sovereign Lord, that is Adonai Jehovah, this is what we've been thinking about. Sovereign Lord, I turn from my sin, that is everything I've done wrong, said wrong, thought wrong, to your son, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' death on the cross that makes it possible for, for us to have a friendship with the living God. I submit to him as my king. And you know, it's safe to do that because guess what? He's not a control freak. Actually, you know, God is, God who could be a control freak uh, actually empowers us. There are no conscripts in God's army. Have you ever thought about that? He woos us like a lover rather than controls us like a dictator. Um, so he's safe to submit to you. I submit to him as my king. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That's God's empowering presence. I choose to follow you now and always. So let's just bow our heads. Everyone, but just bow our heads. And I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to pause at the end of each line. I'm not going to ask you to pray it out loud or identify yourself by coming forward or anything like that. But what I would say is this. If you're going to pray this prayer with me and uh, make it your own prayer, I'm, I'm going to pause at the end of each line. Could you just raise your right hand just where you are if you're going to pray this prayer with me as your commitment to Jesus Christ, saying that you want to become a Christian, or your recommitment to him. Just raise your hand if this is your indication to him that you want to submit to his kingship, his lordship in your life. Okay, thanks. You can put your hand down now. So, so this is for, for two people, but there could be more. There could be more than two. You could be praying this prayer without actually indicating, and that's absolutely fine. So here's the prayer. Sovereign Lord, I turn from my sin to your son, Jesus Christ. I submit to him as my king. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I choose to follow you now and always. 
Amen. As we go into communion, I'm going to uh, pray a prayer of thanksgiving over the bread and wine for all of us as we uh, receive communion. What I'd say as well is that in a few moments when we have communion, if you've prayed that prayer, if you're one of the two, you may be others, if you've prayed that prayer, perhaps you want to come and pray with me at this station here, this communion station at the front, perhaps receiving communion for the first time because you've given your life to Jesus Christ. could be that people want prayer ministry here and me and Paul and Mark, we'd be happy to pray with you if some of those pastoral things have connected with you in terms of you know, wanting to be free from fear or fear from controlling. could be that there's a situation where there's real bad stuff has happened in your life that you know is not God, but bad stuff has happened in your life and actually you long to see the good. In other words, you, what, you, you want to say to the Lord, what's the redemptive gift? What's the good thing, Lord, that you can bring out of that? And maybe that's a good prayer you can pray when bad stuff is happening, whether it's illness or... So, Lord, what is the... Re- that's the prayer I sometimes pray. What is the redemptive gift? Something negative has happened to me recently in Oxford, and that's been my prayer. Lord, what's the redemptive gift here? What's the good thing that you want to bring out of this circumstance that I don't believe you caused? But what's the good thing? So it could be to do, it could be to do with, with that um, as well. So, so do come forward if you'd like to read prayer. We've got some anointing oil here. In the Bible, one of the traditions is to anoint someone with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We'd be happy to pray with you and anoint you with oil. So that's the response... Um, today and, um, and actually perhaps if we've got one more song from the worship team that we could have that'd be good and you, perhaps you guys can receive communion at the very end is that alright and uh, when everyone's finished but one song as we're, as we're receiving communion and then perhaps Pastor Mark can give the blessing at the end if you or whatever we do so here's, here's the, the prayer of thanksgiving over the bread uh, so Lord Jesus Christ we remember on the, on the night that you were betrayed you took bread and Lord you broke it And you gave it to your disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, Lord Jesus, after supper you took the cup and you said, This is the blood of the eternal covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Jesus, in obedience to your command, we take this uh, bread, we bless it, we break it, we share it, we take this wine, we thank you for it. And we pray, Jesus, that this bread and wine might become everything you intended it to be. And as we feed on you in our hearts now by faith with thanksgiving, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for those people who've perhaps come into your kingdom this this morning, people who've renewed their commitment to you, perhaps maybe they've uh, fallen back slightly. But we pray for ourselves as well that you might break fear and control, excessive control in our own lives. May we know that you are sovereign. Lord, because you are sovereign, thank you that we don't need to be. And, uh, and Lord, we pray that you'll show us the redemptive gift, show, the, 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 thing that, the good thing that you want to bring out of negative circumstances in our life. Circumstances, Lord, that you've not caused. But what's the good thing, the redemptive gift that you want to bring out of that? And heal us, Lord, as we, as we walk through the darkness, if we're in darkness in any way, over, over difficult and painful issues in our life. And, uh, and we thank you, uh, Lord, that uh, you are uh, in control. Lord, that you've got a good plan for each one of us. And Lord, we're sorry that those plans have been um, blocked in any way or hindered by our own immaturity or sinfulness. And in Jesus' name, I release the purposes of God over myself and everybody in this room, everybody who names the name of Jesus, we follow Jesus. I release uh, the good and perfect plans of God, the plans that you have, Lord, to prosper us, to not to harm us, plans, Lord, to give us hope and a future. And I pray that for this as a church, Lord, corporately over Apex Church, that you might release your destiny, your good and perfect plan your destiny over this church to prosper this church to give it hope to give it a future to increase this church to use this church and over us as individuals lord jesus um, as well and lord we recognize that is certainly at least in part condition on us on us on us submitting to your kingship 
Lord, for you to be the king, we need to be the subject. So we subject ourselves to you. We submit to you. We recognize it's safe to do so because you're good. You're the good and perfect father, and perfect, more perfect than any human being on the face of the earth. You're the perfect one, the righteous one, the holy one. So righteous king, holy king, perfect king, we submit to you as individuals and as a church, and we pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might walk into the destiny you have for us as individuals and as a church, and we might recognize, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are king of the ages. We submit to you, we look to you, we love you. Amen. Amen.